This is Claiming Your Voice with Janice Garrard. In this podcast, I feature guests with passionate stories of hope, inspiring others to claim their voice in a world where we can be bold together. Today, my guest is Michael Park Ingram. Michael is a South Korean-born adoptee. He is an actor, filmmaker. He has also been a volunteer video recorder and editor for Skills for Change, which is an employment and immigration agency in Toronto. Michael has three children, and two of them play competitive soccer which he says the fallout is a heck of a lot of laundry and a little sleep. Good morning, Michael, and welcome. And it looks like you've had some sleep today. Good morning. Yes, I did indeed. So um, I I was lucky enough to have an early game yesterday and uh, got to sleep on time. So I had read part of your bio. Do you want to start from the beginning about your beginnings in Korea? Uh, yeah, sure. So from what I've read, in my adoption file, I was born in 1967, May 8th, in uh, Miryang, which is south near Tegu. If you look around the area, if you find the military base, that's um, a good indication, at least for me, that I was born there. And I, um, again, from the files, learned that um, my birth mother had kept me for a little while before uh, bringing me to the Holt Adoption Agency in Seoul. You know, at that, well, growing up, I really didn't know much more than that. I spent a little time in, at Holt and then was adopted out twice, actually. Um, once by a family in California who at the last minute apparently canceled my adoption for whatever reason. And um, my current family which is a great family. I have three natural-born older sisters who are basically all two years apart and four years apart from the youngest from, from me. So I am definitely the baby of the bunch. There are two blonde hair, one brunette. So I uh, certainly stand out as the adoptee in the family. Um, but yeah, my origins were in Korea. I really didn't know much about Korea because in 1968, when I arrived in Chicago, I grew up in an area where, of course, there were no other Koreans, no other adoptees, no other mixed race children. So um, my roots were a little vague for most of my life growing up. So when was it that you started uh, putting those puzzle pieces together, finding out a little bit of that history? Maybe you could share about what you found out about your uh, bio parents. Really, there wasn't much to gain from the adoption file um, besides some basic facts that my mother was a hostess in a GI bar, which could mean anything. But of course, certainly... The stigma is that my mother was a prostitute and I was, you know, the product of a GI relationship. What was written in my file, which was interesting, was that my birth father was transferred to Japan. So South Korea being the largest occupation of U.S. military outside of the U.S. Um, is a significant factor, I think, in a lot of adoptees. Uh, origin story, not only mixed race, but certainly um, just the culture of uh, the Confucianism uh, in Asia at the time that, you know, uh, the new children 
or, or the new wife didn't want the old wife's children. There was, you know, the the sense of pedigree by birth um, influencing a lot of our lives as adoptees, uh, whether you're mixed race, GI born, or 100% Korean as an adoptee. So, um, yes. So, like many other adoptees, my my history is a little vague, but r- really, um, and I forget where I'm going with this, but um, really, uh, my story, you know, had had some interesting elements that always kept me seeking more, wanting to know more. I think, you know, in terms of adoptees, identity is a big theme in our lives and we we certainly strive to find our own having a sense of a missing piece to our story so it always motivated me to want to know more and understand more um unfortunately again in our adoption files some people had no information certainly um the wave of adoptees that came before me in 1968, there was very little information. I was really lucky enough to find out a little more about my adoption file because in the late 1990s, I was inspired. I mean, really, I I was on an emotional journey, an emotional search for my birth story, my my roots. Um, all my life, I just had a question. And um, it wasn't, you know, since the sense that I had a, a hole in my heart, it wasn't tragic. It was just curious. And I think anyone would would have that curiosity if they were adopted. I mean, certainly, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to judge other people's experience. I, I think everyone's experience is unique. But you know, I've I've certainly heard the gambit of of stories of people just shutting out that part of their life and moving on. And I thought, well, you know, I could be that way. I could be just, you know, cold and and want to forget and shut that part of my life off and, and close it down and start my own story from my own origin point. Um, but I I was just too curious to find out more about my own personal uh, story. So in the late 90s, I was really inspired to start another birth search. I mean, birth search back in those days, we had the fax documents, wait for snail mail. Um, It was a very slow process. And certainly when you invest yourself emotionally in your own personal search, it can get a little tiring. So, um, you know, these spurts, of wanting to find out more information would eventually, you know, after six, nine months, kind of wear me down to the point where I I was just too tired to go on anymore and to chase leads. I mean, it 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 is an emotional investment that you you have to pay the price for um, in some ways. And in my case, uh, sleep, right? Um, sleep and certainly the commitment of that emotion toward you know, seeking your own self is exhausting. I chose at that time, back in the late 90s, to uh, study Korean, Hangul. And uh, I found a woman in a newspaper in Chicago that wanted to 
teach English because her husband was English. So she was going to basically private tutor myself and her husband and really fantastic, fantastic woman. She gave us um, the University of Seoul, uh, Hangul books. We, we took a page by page. It was really fascinating. And certainly, you know, since I didn't know many Koreans up until that point, um, you know, in the 90s, I was in my 20s. So really, I was an adult that knew nothing about Korea, nothing about Koreans. I had been raised in middle class, white, suburban, you know, America for all of my life. So this was really fascinating. And, and certainly, it was comfortable and safe to be in someone's home learning it, making the mistakes, um, not having the Asian tongue to you know, speak perfectly. And, you know, people look at us and they think, oh, that guy knows how to use chopsticks, uh, you know, can speak any Asian language, you know, because they're all basically the same. You know, we get lumped into these, these situations of expertise being adoptees. And yet, you know, we're, we're without the proper knowledge and, and history. But, you know, it is, it is in our blood. So, it is comforting to know that uh, we, we have a little bit of a head start, right? My teacher was really dedicated. Um, her husband probably wasn't as motivated as I was, um, certainly um, learning the language. It is hard, although I, I think, you know, certain people take on language quicker. Um, but being in my 20s, I think that, you know, it is harder to learn languages when you're a little older. So... Um, I would agree with that. I've tried to uh, take a Korean class a couple of times and ended up not finishing. <laughs> so, um, but I have gotten to the point where I can recognize the uh, symbols, the Hangul symbols. So, indeed, uh, I wanted indeed. to ask you about growing up in that middle class, white suburban neighborhood that you had talked about uh, when we had met in an earlier conversation. Well, just to wrap up, what my teacher also did, which was really amazing, was um, on the back page of one of my adoption file pages, there was the Chinese script. And back in the day, apparently, a lot of official records were also translated into Chinese. And I believe Chinese language was taught in Korea in the schools for a while, back in the early part of the 1900s. Uh, the last century. But she transcribed my birth mother's name and address. So I had actually that, not knowing if it was actually the real name and address, but I had that forever. Well, not forever, but for a long time. And I was able to act on that later. We'll, we'll circle back to that. But um, in terms of your question, it was an experience. Certainly, you know, at, at the beginning of it, you know, I didn't realize the sort of privilege that I was given being adopted. I took it for granted. I um, took on, you know, a lot of, I guess, I, I assumed the role of middle class white America. You know, my parents had a sob. My mom, an educator, also a doctor of education. Uh, my dad, a Presbyterian minister and theologian, doctor of theology. You know, my, my older sisters were all overachievers, you know, Stanford, Northwestern, uh, McAllister. I think they have nine degrees between three sisters, eight, eight degrees. 
just really amazing. And I was the baby of the bunch. So, you know, I was spoiled. I had Star Wars wallpaper. My parents, you know, had someone build a tree house for me. I really had everything I needed growing up. And I was raised in a loving house. You know, certainly my parents weren't perfect like anyone, but they were honest about my adoption. They were loving as a family. I couldn't have asked for more, which, you know, unfortunately led, led me, um, you know, in terms of my identity crisis, led me toward addiction, you know, toward the end, um, just my, my pride, my selfishness, my ego, th things came into play. And it, it was probably from my, you know, my, my privileged upbringing. I did grow up uh, in really affluent areas of the country and prided myself on that and thought that was going to be my identity. But really, that was my family's identity. It wasn't personal to me. I, you know, I love the fact that you know, I, I went to high school in Aspen, Colorado for a year, and I think it's the most beautiful place in the world, you know, with the mountains and the peace and the small town attitude. But really, um, you know, you can get that anywhere. And, and I think I was more identifying with the jet set lifestyle and, you know, partying and dancing in the bars and doing shots. And it was so great in my 20s, um, you know, when I dated a multimillionaire heiress when I was 19. Oh, I just, I took for granted and took advantage of, you know, my upbringing in so many different ways. And again, you know, that led uh, ultimately, you know, toward my path of addiction and uh, now recovery. I want to congratulate you to be in recovery because uh, that is no small thing to take uh, those steps. You know, this is only uploaded right now. I upload this with audio so our listeners don't see you. Do you want to talk about the other side of being Korean, the other side of being raised in a white home? Sure. Um, well, certainly there was, you know, the underlying tone of you don't really understand me. You don't you don't see the fact that, yes, I drive a sob, but you know, I get pulled over you know, when I'm 16 by cops. I mean, it's very intimidating being uh, darker skin in, you know, really affluent areas. My parents lived in the wealthiest suburb north of Chicago, but in the tiniest house behind the Midas muffler shop on Green Bay Road in Kenilworth, Illinois. I mean, these are estates with guest houses in a suburb. Like, who needs a guest house in a suburb? They were protective because I was their child, you know, regardless. And that was really comforting. And, and you know, the bubble of our family that I grew up in, and, and I was protected. But, you know, in the real world, they couldn't protect me. And they didn't see a lot of it. And they didn't understand the looks that I got, the, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Like in first grade, this is one thing that came up in parts of my recovery. Um, in first grade, there was a child who was having a birthday party and his mother picked him up from school. And, and she's like, oh, 
Johnny, did you invite Michael to your birthday party? And he looks at her and goes, Mom, but he's a nigger. Like, what one-year-old knows how to say that, you know, unless they're taught that by their parents? Uh, because I don't, I didn't really hear that from one year, our first graders, mm -hmm. you know. Sorry if I said one-year-old, I, I meant first grade, but mm -hmm. yeah. When, when your parents don't see that, they can't protect you from that. So you grow up with those sort of little knife wounds, you know, razor cuts, paper cuts uh, in your life. And, and occasionally, I think they build up, you know, and they give you scars. And, you know, they're marks of, of pain and shame and guilt. Um, all those things tied into being different. And um, that's kind of, I think, the underlying thing for adoptees is somewhere down inside, we feel different. And, you know, uh, addiction can, can stem from that, that feeling of otherness. Another example was, you know, in, in middle school, when I think a lot of youth are having their, their first issues come to bloom, um, I was distracted in school. I was playing the class clown because, you know, I wanted to fit in. And I figured, hey, if you make people laugh, they're not going to pick on you, right? So um, I was sent to the office a lot. My mother was assistant superintendent of schools at the time, and she was getting called by the, our principal, my principal, every other day. I, I, I don't know how my parents did it, but... Um, during that time, one of one of the family friends, close family friend, like this guy redid the woodwork in our house in Michigan, like wood paneling, just pristine. My parents loved him. We'd have dinner at our house every other month or so. Like he was a close family friend, not like one of my parents' dear friends, but close family friend. My parents had libation hour after work. So from 5.30 to 6.30, they would have their cocktails, close the wooden doors. Um, you know, my the dinner would be in the oven. My mom would put like pork chops down, a can of tomato soup, can of peas. And uh, in one hour, that would be our dinner. My parents got up, my mom to check on the dinner, my dad to make another cocktail. This family friend, I'm having a ginger ale or whatever. This family friend said, do you know how disappointing you are to your parents and when you get into trouble, like how much they worry about your future, like just fully laid on the guilt trip, like no holds barred. Talk to me as if he were, you know, a family member himself, you know, things, things like that said behind the people that are supposed to protect you for me really affected me down the road. I, you know, lost that sense of security. I had more insecurity. I certainly questioned, you know, my own, you know, self-worth. Um, so these these personal attacks, be it from wherever, you know, can really add up. And, you know, of course, an adoptee has a little bit of a delicate nature. You know, there's there's something that we we have to heal within ourselves uh, a lot of times, or at least in my experience. I, I really need to speak more of um, myself in general, but um, having, having been a part of like a lot of Korean adoptee networks um, in the 90s when I was in Chicago, 
by the way, I live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Now I moved up here. I immigrated in 2004. I've been here since working as an actor. Do you find many Koreans in Toronto? There is a lovely Korean population here. Yes. My experience with Korean populations in general is, is really interesting. Well, first of all, my, my father's church, where we, where we grew up in Bensonville, Illinois, where, where I was first adopted, is now actually a Korean Presbyterian church. So great. Um, and, and really, I didn't see another Korean until I had a classmate in second grade, first and second grade who was Korean, who reached out and got in touch with me about two years ago and reminded me we were both the only Koreans in Bensonville. But um, really, I didn't meet my first Korean like friend until university. So 1985, uh, when David Yoon-ho Cho became my friend and fraternity brother. It wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles, 2005, uh, that I really knew of a Korean neighborhood, Korean community. Like Koreatown in LA is real Korean, you know? I mean, that's where like you really want to be able to read the menu, speak a little. Like that's where you feel, oh man, I, I'm at home, right? These are my people when you're surrounded by Koreans. There is a lot of stigma, of course, as well. Like, will they accept me? You know, I don't, no one's, no Korean sees me as Korean. They like, you're Filipino, right? Um, and, and certainly like, I, I was just on uh, season two of Pachinko and I played distinguished gentleman number two. Um, but I'm part of a, a Japanese like gang that Lee Min-ho uh, is working with in Japan. If you haven't seen Pachinko the series or read the book, it's it's rather fantastic. And I read uh, the book, so now right. I have to watch the series so I can look for you. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, don't blink. Season two. A fantastic series, but again, I was cast as, I guess, Japanese. But it was a real honor just to be on that set. I mean, there were... I would say it was about 80% uh, ethnic in terms of the cast and crew. Like you really, you don't see that in America or Canada even. And Canada is a great melting pot, but um, still the, the crews on most productions and most productions here are American, but the crews are, you know, 80% white and 20% everyone else. But, you know, things are changing. Things are mm -hmm. progressing and, and um, certainly casting has loosened up quite a bit. But yeah, uh, growing up, I, I think the Korean population was just a little out of reach for me in terms of my areas. And um, it, it was always a mystery. So I wanted to know more, but I didn't know how to proceed and, and didn't really have any mentors. Um, so, you know, uh, attaching myself to a Korean Adoptee Network uh, got me a little closer to um, that sense of belonging to the Korean population, the, the Korean identity. Korean Adoptee Networks, I don't know if anyone is out there listening is, has been involved in it, but 
what a great way to meet other people with shared history, shared uh, concerns, shared inspirations, really. I had a wonderful time doing that and certainly got to meet uh, later uh, some really fantastic people who also got me connected to Me in Korea, an organization that sponsors uh, cultural reunification tours in Korea. And if you haven't heard of that, Me in Korea, uh, please do look it up. I would highly recommend it to anyone. It is an organization that that sponsors both uh, tours for Korean adoptees of full Korean heritage and HAPA or mixed race adoptees of mixed race uh, backgrounds. So I went on the HAPA tour uh, three years ago now, and we went to nine cities. The minute I got off the plane, I felt at home. And I I can't explain it, um, but it really just, it connected that that sense in my DNA, being in Korea, and again, like I'm with other mixed race adoptees, I felt so comfortable, welcomed, and it it really brought to the forefront all my questions about where I came from and and really helped in my struggle with my identity um, in the sense that I I really did feel at peace in the country. I was curious everywhere I went. It was at times overwhelming, of course, to to be in the restaurants and to think, am I holding my chopsticks like Korean style? You know, we we were a good group. It was really fantastic. I mean, everyone's experience was different. There were about I think about 29 people on my tour, um, but I got to know some really, really great people. I went with a fourth cousin of mine that I had found through my, I think, third DNA test. Um, so really, really a fantastic time, but I highly recommend it for everyone. The, the organization also sponsors the trip. All you need to do is purchase your airline ticket and bring a little spending money. My family was very supportive and volunteered to buy my ticket. I don't think I spent more than like $300 maybe Canadian um, in my 10 days there. So a fantastic experience that you should not miss if you have the opportunity to take that time and really explore your roots. One fantastic thing about the tour is you get a special day I had from my adoption file and my Korean language teacher, the name and address of my birth mother. So my special day, I took the bullet train to Daegu um, with my interpreter. And I actually visited the place where I was born. And subsequently, I have two half brothers. My mother was abandoned by my birth father, who was probably transferred to Japan. Um, her version of the story, and I'll get to how we met, but her version of the story was that he sent his best friend around to our house after I was born. And the best friend said that I wasn't black enough to be his son. 
So my birth father cut off my birth mother and subsequently me. And that was the decision, the impetus that, you know, gave my mother the idea to put me up for adoption. The adoption wave was just kind of starting in Korea. I mean, there were, I guess at the beginning, uh, first wave, there were just abandoned children that the country didn't know what to do with. They, you know, had a lot of missionaries, I think, uh, get together. I, I think people started working on the issue in the late 60s. And then adoption agencies, religious groups, churches, everyone started getting involved. And then there was uh, sort of a proper network and channel to export these abandoned uh, children and children put in orphanages uh, who were out for adoption. So I think the the timing, you know, really happened in the late 60s. But of course, it was like one of the most emotional days in my life. What really struck me was um, being in that area and seeing, seeing, you know, really the framework of, of the structure of the town is the same. There's a giant military base. And then across the street basically are a row of GI bars. You know, at the time I was still drinking and, and certainly like I went straight for the soju and, um, you know, took, took a bit of the edge off and I just sat and, you know, I thought, I wonder what bar my, my birth mother worked in. And these are, these are like, these are like, I don't know if, if anyone has ever been to Chicago, um, but back in the nineties, Rush Street was like the big drinking Mecca. Everyone goes down there to get fucked up and, and drink Long Islands and, you know, $4 Long Islands. And like, anyway, it, the GI bar row was kind of like Rush Street, kind of grimy and dirty. And, you know, it, it was there for one purpose, for GIs to get drunk. I mean, there was a sign on the one door that said, if you're going to act like an asshole, don't even bother fucking coming in. Like, handwritten note. Like, if if a place comes with a warning like that, it's probably not the most scintillating place, you know, to hang out. Um, not not a poetry crowd, but um, you you really got that sense of, well, this this country is at the service of the U.S. military um, and has been taken advantage of in so many ways. On the tour, it was very interesting. The, the people were just so excited to to share the history of the areas we went to. And, you know, they would show us vintage photos of the same streets where we were standing on. But, you know, back in the 60s and Korea was just so so poor as a country. One of the things that was said was that, you know, the locals would would buy the military compost garbage for like three dollars and make oink oink stew, which was like the slops, the the discarded trays of food. They would just boil it and make a, a soup out of it back but back in the 50s and 60s, people were putting out their cigarettes. Like, you didn't know what was in the stew. But that's how Koreans had to survive then. There was 
no money after the Korean War. And certainly the industry of prostitution and, and pleasure was, seriously, I think it was quoted at 60% of the gross domestic product of the country. So the women of Korea held that country together for at least a decade in terms of if there weren't women in that service industry, the country absolutely would have folded in a financial crisis. And, and it would have had the third world problems for so long. So, I mean, it is, it is kind of a double-edged sword that the U.S. military presence helped the country, but, you know, helped it without, without any um, responsibility, I think, without any accountability. They used to just bury their, their broken vehicles in, in the, you know, land, and the landfills are now contaminated with this, you know, oil spill garbage that the military's left behind. They estimate the cleanup to be in the hundreds, hundreds of millions. And so far, the U.S. is not admitted to any of it. Step forward with assisting in the plan to remove it. I mean, this is this is toxic stuff in in the soil of a country that is uh, environmentally rich. Um, and you know, I talk about the my affinity with Colorado, but Korea is so beautiful in its nature and landscape. Everyone's lawn, even though it it could be only six hundred square feet, is just lush and green and they're healthy they're growing their own you know vegetables the mountains the water it's just a breathtaking country really um i i would love to live there if i had you know the means and uh this the stability to do so i guess i like anyone i could probably find it but i mean romantically i would i would really love to uh, live in Korea for some time. It is seriously one of the more beautiful countries. And now Korea is modern too. So who wouldn't want to live there? I mean, right. just for the t the toilets alone. I mean, it's it's such a pleasure. Uh, uh, their technology it probably exceeds ours of what we have here on this continent. Michael, I thank you for this conversation. Let's reconnect because we're almost out of time because I would really like to hear how you met your birth mother. That sounds great.